Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and it's good to have you with us. We're beginning a new teaching series this morning that will carry us through Lent and into Easter and actually a little bit beyond Easter as well. And one of our key emphasis this year in 2013 at Jericho is scripture intake. We want to help you understand how to hear from God uh, in his word individually and then corporately in the scriptures. But one of the challenges I find that can happen in this process is that you're reading through the scripture, through the Bible, and you come across something and you think to yourself, what the? (laughs) I do not understand this at all. What is going on in it? No way. Now, have you ever had that experience? I know I have. And, and you, you think, well, some of these, okay, maybe it's an issue of cultural distance. After all, the world in the ancient Near East that uh, the Bible originally was written into is very, very different from our context here in suburban Vancouver. And some of these are issues of our interpretive lens. And as Anabaptists, we would say that our primary lens that we look at scriptures with is the person and work of Jesus. So if you come across something confusing in the Old Testament, it can be helpful to say, okay, well, maybe this will sort itself out as we get to the New Testament. I mean, Jesus, he's clear on stuff or clearer on stuff, isn't he? And there's an element of truth to that. In, in our confession of faith as Mennonite brethren, we articulate that the person, the teaching, and life of Jesus bring continuity and clarity to both the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament bears witness or points to Christ, and Jesus is the one whom the New Testament proclaims. But that's helpful, but there's something that I think we should also be clear about and tell ourselves the truth about. And the fact is that Jesus, while he brings clarity and continuity can still be difficult to understand. Sometimes Jesus is difficult to understand because of the use of metaphor or story that he's engaged with, and we've got to dig. But sometimes, dare I say often, reading the words of Jesus can be difficult, not because I don't understand them, but actually because I do understand them clearly, and I understand them to make a demand on my life. And so therefore, the challenge goes up. And despite people in that intro video and the quotes that were mentioned, and people even now in our day and time who will often talk about how much they respect Jesus as a teacher, as a historical figure, uh, Jesus can say some pretty intense and controversial things. Some things that are pretty hard to swallow. And so in this teaching series, we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus said and explore some of those hard sayings of Jesus that are difficult to wrap our minds around and ask the question, what if Jesus actually meant what he said? We're calling this series Red Letters, which comes from the notion that in many translations or versions of the Bible, it's very common to print the words of Jesus in red. Just listen to revered theologians Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber explain in their own extended version of the children's song, the B-I-B-L-E. Look for me, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Oh yeah. The B-I-B-L-E, yes that's the book for 
The red ones are the coolest. They're the ones that Jesus said. Now, red letter Bibles, how many of you, if you open your Bible, that the stuff Jesus said is printed in red? If you have a look. All right. I don't know if it is on your phones or not, on uversion.com. But it's so ubiquitous. So many Bibles have red letters in them. It can be tempting to think that it was always such, that the Bible, as soon as you know, Jesus said it was written down and printed in red ink, but it was not always the case. In fact, the idea is just over 100 years old. And it originated by a man by the name of Louis Klaucht, and he was the editor of a magazine called The Christian Herald, and he was a good friend of Chicago-based evangelist Dwight L. Moody at the turn of the 20th century. And one of his favorite projects as a magazine publisher was raising money for scripture printing. In his day, he actually raised over $3 billion in our currency today for international relief and projects all around the world. But he loved to raise money for scripture translation. And so one day he was reading Luke chapter 22, verse 20, where Jesus says to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, uh, and you will do it in remembrance of me, poured out for you. And the idea came to Klaupst, what if I printed all of the words that Jesus said in red? And so here's a quote from the introductory note to the first edition published in 1899. He published it under the pretty self-evident title, and this is the whole title. The New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, authorized version, with all the words recorded therein as having been spoken by our Lord, printed in color. (laughs) Just so no one would get confused. So here's how he introduced it. He said this, Modern Christianity is striving zealously to draw near the great founder of our faith. Setting aside mere human doctrines and theories regarding him, it presses in close to the divine presence to gather from Jesus' own lips the definition of his mission in the world and his revelation of the Father. And so the Red Letter Bible has been prepared and issued in a full conviction that it will meet the needs of the student, worker, and searchers of truth everywhere. In the Red Letter Bible, more clearly than in any other editions of the scriptures, in his humble estimation, it becomes plain that from beginning to end, the central figure upon which all of the lines of law, history, poetry, and prophecy converge in Jesus, the Savior of the world. He expounded in the scripture the things concerning himself and divine plan for man's redemption, and the Red Letter Bible indicates and emphasizes this divine exposition and personal revelation at each successive stage, making them so clear that even the simplest may understand. And Red Letter Bibles became a publishing phenomenon. People, publishers were tripping over themselves to put everything Jesus said into red, and then they expanded and put the prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about Jesus into red, and then quotes where other people were quoting Jesus and the rest of the New Testament in red, and so on and so forth. And this is really the heart of our teaching series, is that we want to hear from Jesus' own mouth the definition of his mission in the world and our call to participate in it as people of faith. And so if you want to find a section in the New Testament that has red letters written all over it, you can't do much better than Luke chapter 15, 16, and 17. If I open to this page in my Bible, almost the whole thing is printed 
in red. In other words, Jesus is doing a lot of talking and teaching in this section. And the black letters are really only like headings, verse numbers, or introductory comments that uh, make what Jesus is saying a little bit clearer. And so when you get into Luke chapter 17, and if you have your Bibles open with me to Luke chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus' disciples come to him and they ask a pretty darn good question. They ask a question that most of followers of Jesus will ask at some point or another in their lives. In Luke 17, 5, the disciples come to the Lord and say, Lord, would you show us how to increase our faith? And in his red letter response, Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. (laughs) He, He gives them a word picture to try and help understand. In Luke 17, verse 6, Jesus answered the question, show us how to increase our faith, Jesus. And you would think he might give them a, well, step one, here's what you should do. And then you should probably pray a little more. And then you should probably do this. Jesus says this, if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would obey you. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? I mean, it, it's, it's become uh, a, a bit of a euphemism in Christian community. If you've been around for a long time, talking about faith of a mustard seed, and if you have faith, you can move mountains, and, you know, this mulberry tree business. What is Jesus saying? Is he, saying that we, is he suggesting that we go around and we pray for good trees to be uprooted and thrown into the ocean. I mean, the mulberry tree, you know, here we go round, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. This one's painted a little more uh, illustriously by Vincent van Gogh. And, I mean, these trees are pretty impressive trees. The black mulberry variety, which grows in the Middle East, it can grow to be 600 years old and have a root system that bears testimony to the fact that it's been in that place for 600 years. So how in the world are you supposed to uproot a 600-year-old tree? Well, let's look at the components here of Jesus' response. First of all, we have to look and see, well, what is Jesus, what's Jesus responding to here? Why did the disciples even bother asking him a question about increasing their faith? And if you look in verse 4 of chapter 17, Jesus is actually responding to a question on forgiveness and how hard it is to forgive someone who wrongs you over and over and over again and comes to you and asks for forgiveness again in the same issue over and over and over again. And the disciples hear him teach about forgiving someone that often and they say, oh, oh Lord, that's so tough. You're going to have to tell us how we can get more faith because I don't think I have faith to forgive people like that. So the disciples are asking for more faith because they don't think they have what it takes to forgive a person who wrongs them over and over and over again. I don't know about you, but in my life, I get this. I have children. I have people in my life uh, also who, who just consistently push my buttons. They do the same stupid things over... I'm not talking about my kids now, other people. They do the same stupid things over and over and over again. Sometimes they're just aggravating to me, and I wish that they would get the message, and sometimes they're downright hurtful. 
And sometimes it's even much deeper than that. Sometimes people go around and they deeply wound me. As we talked about two weeks ago, the question of our response as people of faith, as people who say that we follow Jesus, will evidence itself in these moments, in these interactions where you get the opportunity to say, is my life genuinely being transformed by God into a person who looks more like Jesus and who's growing in areas of forgiveness. When someone comes to me and asks forgiveness yet again for something that they've done, this is hard work. And the disciples get this. They understand what a huge amount of faith it takes to forgive someone consistently. Sometimes my anger and my bitterness at people who hurt me can have very, very, very deep roots. And it can feel like sometimes it's like 600 years old. And so how in the world am I supposed to get rid of that depth of anger and fear and frustration and hurt? And this is where Jesus introduces the second metaphor from the garden world. And that is faith that is the size of a mustard seed. The mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds that was allowed to be cultivated in ancient Palestine. But it's not actually its size that makes it very powerful. It's actually the way in which mustard grows that makes it quite potent. Shane Claiborne, in his book, Red Letter Revolution, notes that mustard actually is like an invasive and wild weed. Jews, actually, in the ancient world had customs against growing mustard in your garden. Because if you got a little bit of mustard in your garden, it would grow and take over the whole thing. So you don't want it anywhere near any soil because it would leave you only mustard in your garden. It would take over. Mustard is a humble plant. It doesn't grow huge like the mulberry tree or the cedars of Lebanon or giant redwoods in California. Mature mustard stands at most eight, kind of 10 feet high. It's a modest little bush. But when Jesus puts these two things in contrast with each other, in this garden image, he's inviting, and in other places, he reminds us that the, the kingdom of God starts very, very small, like a mustard seed. And it's a beautiful image of how that kind of faith might take root and grow and grow and then perpetuate a small, humble invasion of goodness and grace in our lives and in the world. And so the disciples' question is, Jesus, show us how to increase our faith. And Jesus puts a contrast in front of them. And in effect, by contrasting the mulberry tree and the mustard seed, he's saying, listen, the crucial issue here is actually not the quantity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's not how big or how small your faith is. It's where you put your faith, or more appropriately, whom you put your faith in, or that you have any faith at all. Because even the tiniest, tiny bit of faith 
planted in your heart over time can grow invasively until it begins to take over more and more and more real estate in your heart and in your life. But it doesn't start like a massive tree or even a big seed. It starts tiny. And this is where I get encouraged because sometimes I look at people that I think around me and I think, oh man, they just have so much faith, like way more faith than I do. Look at how much confidence they have in God. Or when they pray, like I listen to them and think, I wish I could pray like that. Man, they just seem like they're really, you know, excited. And they just seem to have a real deep trust and confidence in God. And sometimes we tell ourselves, oh, I could never get there. You know, I don't know if I could ever believe God in, in that way. But what Jesus is saying here is that the crucial issue in our lives and our experience is that in each one of these people and in each one of us, at one point in our lives, in every one of our lives, faith was as small and minuscule as a mustard seed. But at some point, you chose to let it into the garden and let it grow. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it began to create a little patch of mustard seed plants, and then a little garden, and then a whole field. But faith always, always, always begins in small and humble and insignificant ways. And so if you ask God to increase your faith, don't necessarily expect that somehow you'll feel like he's backed up a big dump truck and just unloaded it into your life. It may not feel that different at all, but a small and tiny seed might have taken root and grown. And if you're asking God to increase your faith, He may just put you in situations where it has opportunity to grow and where you have opportunity to stretch and exercise your faith. Maybe he'll put you in a situation where you have to forgive a person who's wronged you deeply and you know that you can't do it on your own strength. You need the strength and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to do it. And you need to do it in faith where you have to exercise inordinate amounts of patience. God might put you in situations then in your finance or in your work environment or relationships or wherever it might be where you have to trust him in ways that you haven't had to trust him before. And the message of these red letters is that faith often starts infinitesimally small. but it starts somewhere. And if you plant it in the soil of God's grace, it can grow into something incredibly significant. And so our primary responsibility as a disciple is to orient the object of our trust towards God. Our main responsibility is to say, all right, God, I trust you, and I will allow faith to grow in my heart. That's one of the reasons why we're doing prayer training, not this coming Saturday, but next Saturday. Because we want to put you in environments where you can exercise that muscle of faith and ask God for things and be trained to pray for others in particular 
in that environment and ask God to build and grow our faith and our hearts together uh, as we pray. So I don't know where you're at today, but it may feel to you like the obstacles that you're dealing with in your life seem like their roots go down into the very core of who you are. The character flaws that come up in your life, maybe even over this past week, may feel like they're completely intractable. The tendency to put someone else down to make yourself look better. The tendency to take ethical shortcuts in business. The substance abuse or sexual addiction that you work so hard to keep neatly hidden away so that no one will know. All of these things that are wrong in our lives can feel like they're 600 years old and their roots just go so deep that we sometimes just get sick and tired of feeling like praying about them because I wonder if they'll ever, ever get rid of them. But one of the things that Jesus is saying here is the crucial issue is not how much faith you have about whether or not God can move into your life in those areas that these things can change. The critical issue is how much power God has. The critical issue is that when God is invited to get involved, big things have the possibility of happening. 600-year-old mulberry trees can be uprooted and moved, and it does not depend on you or me just grinning and trying to grit and muster up more faith. It depends on God. And I think this helps make sense of the second story that Jesus tells to try and help his disciples understand how they might grow and increase their faith. It's a story about a laborer or a servant who gets no thanks whatsoever. In verse 7 of Luke 17, Jesus says, When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does the master say, Oh, come in and eat with me? No. He says, Prepare my meal. Put on your apron. Serve me while I eat. And then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he's told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, Jesus says, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. Now, on first brush, this story doesn't seem to make a lot of sense either. Because... What is Jesus driving at here with this servant business? We have a hard-working servant who gets no thanks for doing their duty whatsoever. You know, a lot of the times we would think, well, the story should go something like the heart of the servant works really hard, and then the master says, you know, I can just see how hard you've been working. Well done, good and faithful servant. You deserve a promotion. You should come and, and get more responsibilities. And in, in some of Jesus' other parables, that's actually the, the way that things roll out. But in this one, no. After the servant does everything, then Jesus says, yeah, the servant really doesn't deserve to get any thanks for doing any of these things. The servant actually should continue to tell themselves they're unworthy servants. They've simply done their duty. So what are we supposed to learn from this story? Because actually Jesus is clear on who the story is about. Jesus says, I'm the master. When you, in the way, when you obey me, 
you should simply say we're unworthy servants. So Jesus is the master, and we're to play the part of the unworthy servants in the story. So that part is clear. What's Jesus driving at here? Well, I wonder if one of the things Jesus might be helping address is reminding us or teaching against pride that can so easily seep into our lives as our faith begins to grow a little bit. As we begin to take steps of faith and we see God respond, we see the authority and the power of God at work in our hearts and in the lives of others around us, there's a not-so-small temptation that comes our way, and that is to think that faith is growing in our hearts because, quite frankly, we deserve it. You know, we're, we're really stewarding it well, the faith that God gave us. You know, our, frankly, our church is seeing new people come because we're awesome. You know, the people coming to faith in Guatemala during wheelchair distributions, it's happening because, friends, we are just that good. The increase in our budget this year over last year, I mean, it's because we just nailed it. Mustard seed faith? Oh, I have mustard seed faith and then some. It's it's a temptation that we can get into. And to curb this kind of pride, Jesus right away moves into this story about the servant. And I think one of the things he's trying to remind us of is the fact that no matter how much amazing work that you do, no matter how deeply we follow Jesus, no matter how closely we obey him or how much good stuff we get done for him, the reality is we're still just humble servants who have done our duty. Pastor John Piper, in his assessment of this story, he says, the gist is, that the owner of a slave does not become a debtor to the slave no matter how much work the slave does. God is never in our debt. Verse 10, when you two have done all the things that are commanded to you, you would say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. We are always the debtor. And we will never be able to pay back this debt, no matter how many good stuff we do. We will never work our way out of debt to a place where somehow God is now indebted to us for the good work that we have done. Romans 11.35 reminds us of this and says, Who has ever given a gift to God that God should be repaid? And the answer is nobody. The reason that the owner does not thank the slave and the servant is that the servant is not giving the owner more than what the owner deserves. He's not treating the owner with grace. Grace is being treated better than you deserve. So that's the way it is with us in our relationship with God. We never treat God with grace. We never give God more than he deserves, which means that God never owes us thanks. God never says, thank you, to us. Instead, he is always, always, always giving us more than we deserve, and we are always owing him thanks. To me, that's what's so amazing about grace, is that God's grace is so lavish 
and so amazing, when it's rightly understood, it ought to curb our pride because we're the unworthy slaves and we have done, even if we've done incredible things for God in our lives, we should still only consider ourselves as servants. And it's only in God's grace that God would be prompted to affirm us. We'll never be able to come to God on the merits of our good behavior. Ephesians 2 and 8 and 9 reminds us, this is not because of works of righteousness that we have done. It's according to his mercy that he has saved us. Even if we knock it out of the park, doing an amazing job as servants, plowing the fields, taking care of the sheep, prepping the meals, serving it. We don't come to say God and say, hey God, look what an awesome job I'm doing serving over here. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm just killing it in children's ministry, Jesus. It's just going really, really well. Hey God, look what a generous person I'm being with my finances every month. Hey God, look what an awesome parent I've been. Gold stars, please, over here. No. Even the most hard-working and righteous person is still just an unworthy servant who's done their duty. We can't work ourselves into God's good graces. The only way we come is by faith in the finished work of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Jesus mediates God's grace into our lives so that we can receive it. And so the news that you and I are unworthy servants, I think is actually really good news because it not only curbs pride, but it also means that God is just as free to bless us before we get our act together as he is after we do so. Because it's all by his grace. And so I don't have to sort of work myself to a place where where somehow God will give me his grace. It's a great incentive to trust God when I feel like my act is not all together. Because I hear so many people say things like, oh, well, I would come to church, but I feel like I have to get my life cleaned up a little bit first. Or, oh, you know, I'm not really sure if God knew all of the, about the circumstances of my life, if he would really love me. And that's the amazing thing about God's grace is that none of us deserve it. We never move beyond our need for grace, because we've never somehow arrived because of how good we are or how much we've done recently for Jesus. As a disciple or follower of Jesus, this story reminds me that I am always, always, always radically dependent and totally dependent on God's grace. And when we recognize that, that's actually one of the moments where faith has a chance to be planted in our hearts. When we come to that place of acknowledging that we can't do it all on our own. When Keith and Melissa stand and dedicate Haley here today, it's an act of planting mustard seed faith and asking God to continue to give them the grace as parents to be able to grow and help their family grow in grace as God wants and desires and nurture their children to all that God wants them to be. That's not a guarantee. Everyone going on the team to Guatemala in a few short weeks, it's an act 
of faith, stepping out and reminding yourself of your need for God's grace because you're outside of your comfort zone. Even worship, responding to God in worship by his Holy Spirit is an act of radical dependence on God. Because in that place, again, when we sing some of those songs, I'm just reminded over and over and over again that I am not in charge and that I'm simply an unworthy servant doing the bidding of my master. The amazing thing about grace is that God gives it to us when he chooses and when we exhibit an open hand and open hearts ready to receive it, even if it's just as small as a mustard seed. And so Dustin and the team are going to come and lead us in a time of response in worship. And the first song that we're going to sing is one that we're just learning, but it reminds us powerfully about the fact that from beginning to end, this process of growing faith in our hearts is God's process. And with all the pieces of your life, that you can trust God. You can spread them out before him and he's big enough to be able to handle the doubt, the disillusionment, the questions that you have. And maybe, friend, you've got something that you're struggling with here this morning and something that you are, are trying to trust God with and about. But you just, no matter how many... we would be pleased this morning to stand with you and pray with you and for you that God would grant you the faith to trust him in that part of your life. Our prayer team this morning, John Mayer, Katie Kwan, Kristen Clausen, and Jackie Pascoe would just love to pray with you. It doesn't have to be for something massive and monumental. It can be just to say thank you to God for something that he is doing and growing in your life. But the prayer team is here to serve you in this way. And so they'll be available just over at the sides as we move in time of response and song. And maybe you're here today and maybe you've actually never taken that step of allowing a mustard seed of faith in Jesus to be planted in your heart. You've never actually said yes to God's goodness and his grace in your life. Maybe you've been doing life on your own efforts and initiatives and strength, and when it comes to relating to God, you always, always, always feel unworthy. The incredibly good news is that we're all in the same boat, friends. We're all unworthy servants who need God. And this is not some kind of religious crutch to get us through tough times in our lives. This is inviting that mustard seed of faith to be planted in your life that will grow and grow and grow and will begin increasingly to get to the very core of who you are and change you from the inside out. And so if that's you today, I don't want you to leave here without talking to somebody about it. Talk to our prayer team. Come and pray with them. Talk to a trusted friend who's here who can walk you through a process of expressing that in words. The scripture says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It can be your choice here today because God's deepest desire is to pour his grace and faith into your heart. 
when you acknowledge you're in a position that you're unworthy and you need it. What if Jesus really meant, friends, what he said? That you and I don't need to have our act all together to come to him, to grow or nurture our faith and confidence in his grace and in his work. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I pray for us, and we're going to move into a time where you can invite God to continue to do that work in your heart and in your life and trust that in his sovereign grace and timing, the mustard seeds that have been planted will continue to grow. So God, I pray for each person here in this place today. I pray for myself. God, there's areas of my heart, of my life, where I know that I need your work. I need you to plant seeds of faith in my heart. I need you to do a work in my life and change things. And so, God, I pray that you would clear away all of the garbage, clear away all of the hardness that's in my heart in these places. Would you uncover some soil deep down there today, God, that could you could plant something in that would grow and take root. And God, for those of us who have, those seeds have been planted, but maybe they've been choked out by the cares and concerns of this life. God, I pray that you would stir faith in our hearts again to trust you. Pray that you would, for those who are standing in the midst of something deep and significant and painful in their lives, God, that feels overwhelming. I pray that you would gift them with faith, God. Gift us as a community with faith to stand with them and pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we sing the words of these songs, Jesus, in faith and asking, Lord, we believe, would you help those areas of our unbelief? Thank you.